Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word that we may receive illumination by means of the filling of the Holy Spirit to the absolute truth of your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we may grow on the basis of and by means of the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this nation that we live in, for the freedoms we have, and we continue to pray for our president, for our political and civil leaders, for our military leaders. We pray that you would give them wisdom during this time of threat to our nation's security. But we recognize, above all things, that you are the source of our security, both as a nation and individually as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study your word, help us to understand these things and be challenged by them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11:17. We continue our study now into the second part of this chapter. 1 Corinthians 11:17. The subject has shifted slightly so that in chapter 11 the issue is public worship. We move from chapters uh, 8 and 9 where we talked about doubtful things, and that led into a discussion of public worship and protocol in public worship. The first 16 verses of chapter 11 dealt with the issue of role distinctions, that is, the distinctions between men and women, and that even in worship there are certain distinctions that must be maintained in order to represent the fact that one understands the authority structure of the universe, and this authority structure is ultimately grounded in the person of God, the three persons of the Trinity and their relationships to one another, that even in the Trinity there is authority. And we studied that last time under the doctrine of the uh, person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 17 there is a shift, a shift in tone. I want you to look back with me just to verse 2. Verse 2 Paul says to the Corinthians, Now I praise you, brethren, 
that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. When we studied that, I pointed out that this is a po- one of the few positive statements that Paul has in this epistle, that he is uh, praising the fact that they have attempted to be consistent with his teaching even though they were making some errors in relationship to the head coverings, etc., but that they were attempting to be consistent with what he had taught. There was no indication of the factiousness that characterized other elements of this epistle. Now, in verse 17, he comes along and he changes the tone from one of praise to one of correction. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. And in these verses, he is going to have to correct them because there are many abuses in the Lord's table there. And they were coming together and using the Lord's table as an opportunity to express their carnality through both gluttony and drunkenness. But before we get to the Lord's table, which I thought would be best to reserve until next Sunday morning, since that's when we will be observing the Lord's table, that we need to focus on what is alluded to in the background for what Paul says in these first three verses. For verse 19 is one that makes a point that few people recognize in local churches. So we'll spend some time this morning dealing with the issue of the local church. But first, some uh, points of exegesis. Paul says, in giving this instruction, actually what we have is a participle, present active participle from uh, parangelo, which means to tell or declare, to pass on an announcement, to advance an order, to give a charge or a command. And the anarthrous participle here is a participle, an adverbial participle, of manner which describes the way in which he is speaking. In giving this instruction, we have to go to the main verb. He says, I do not praise you. So it is a negative statement from the word epino, a present active indicative, first person singular, plus the negative, u, meaning I do not praise you in the way of giving this instruction. And then he explains the reason in the next clause, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. You come together is the present middle indicative of a deponent verb, sunerkomai. Now, a deponent verb means that even though it's in the middle or passive form, it has an active meaning. So they, that is the congregation in Corinth, comes together, and this word, sunerkamai, is a technical term for the assembly of believers together in a local church meeting for the purpose of worship, worship through singing hymns and praises to God, and worship through the study of God's Word. This is the highest form of worship. So they come together, and the context is clearly public assembly, public worship. This 
may involve a house church where you could have even two or three people gathering together in some village somewhere, and that's all they have in terms of believers with positive volition. It could also extend to congregations that exceed thousands, five, six, ten thousand in number. So it would include any context where there is a public worship service where others could be invited, even though it may be in a private home, but because there are only two or three or four people who are positive, that's all that are there. So it has to do with any formal meeting. This isn't talking about an informal meeting of two or three believers getting together, talking about doctrine over a cup of coffee. This is talking about a public worship service where there would be a, a pastor teacher, or in some cases maybe you don't have a local pastor teacher and you've come together and you have to listen to a tape recorder or watch a video, but it is a local church situation. And they are coming together, and then Paul uses another negative plus a purpose clause. Ace plus the accusative indicates a purpose clause, not for the purpose of doing something which is better, but something which is worse. And the word translated better is the an adjective form of the Greek noun krito, which derives from the Greek word um, Kratos, meaning strength, and it denotes power and activity and is used as a comparative adjective for the basic uh, noun agathos, which means good. So krito replaces agathos when it's used in the comparative, and the indication is you're not coming together for the good of intrinsic value, for that which is better. You're not really there for doctrine but for the worse, and this is another comparative adverb meaning for the lesser reason or the worse reason. They weren't there for the purpose of studying doctrine. Now, people come to church for all kinds of reasons. First time you have a visitor in a local church, you never know why they're there. We almost had a situation this morning where we had some visitors who were at the wrong church, but they were standing out in the parking lot actually blocking the entryway and at one minute to nine, you do not block the entryway over here because the pastor tends to be flying in in excess, excessive speed. So when you have four people standing around trying to figure out which way north is, and I'm across the street trying to get across all that traffic and looking at my watch, and they stood there and stood there and continued to stand there trying to figure out what was up, Finally, somebody moved, and I had just enough room to move around them. And they were, I don't know where they were headed, but they were not at the right church, and they realized that as they were coming up. But when you have visitors, you never know why they're there. Maybe they're there for the wrong reason. Maybe they're there because they want their children to get doctrine or to have some sort of religious instruction. They don't know enough to even know about doctrine yet. They just think, well, you know, I want some sort of religious instruction for my kid. Or maybe they're going through some sort of personal crisis, and so they want someone uh, to give them some spiritual guidance. Or maybe they just grew up in a religious home, and they think it's a good thing to do, and they haven't been to that particular church yet, so they'll try that out. You ha- never have an idea why most people darken the door the first time. I would guess, and I'm just going to guess, you always have to remember that 47.5% of all statistics are made up on the spot, that 70% of the people who show up at 
at church for the first time are there for the wrong reason. They're not coming because they've heard the pastor is a wonderful Bible teacher and they want to learn the truth. They're not there because they they um, uh, want to grow and mature as believers. Uh, they're not there because they realize that the study of the Word of God is the highest form of worship. They are there because there's some stirring in their soul, perhaps, and they are maybe they just want social contact with other people who are nice and moral and conservative and religious, and that's the kind of person they are. But frequently what happens is they'll come in the back door and they will hear something they've never never heard before, the verse-by-verse teaching of the Word of God. And if they are positive, if there is a stirring of the soul, perhaps they haven't really thought about it in a couple of years, five years, ten years, uh, but at one point they were positive, and they're still positive, but they've never really found anything, they latch on to what is being taught and decide that they're going to stick around. Perhaps the pastor has something uh, to say because the, the teaching here is not your typical sort of three points in a poem, a lot of entertainment. Uh, you come here, there's not a lot of entertainment. We're not going to impress you with our musical abilities, with our uh, wonderful choir or anything like that. We're just going to teach the Word. Someone once uh, made the observation that you should always emphasize in any business, whatever it is, and this is one of those rare points when business, a business principle relates to the church as well, you emphasize what you do best, and if you can't do something well, don't do it at all. Just emphasize your strength. And then if we emphasize our strength, and it is the teaching of the Word, then what we will attract is people who are really interested in the Word. We won't attract or, or we won't keep people who are here for the youth program. Then we won't keep people who are looking for some sort of social life because they're single and they're looking for a, uh, a Lonely Hearts Club. We won't attract and keep people who are looking for wonderful music programs and, and choirs and cantatas and all of those things. Not that any of those things are wrong, and they do have a place if you can do them well. But if you can't do them well, don't do them because it makes people uncomfortable. That's one reason why I don't like to do some things with the kids, because if you can't do something really well, and that doesn't mean it has to be professional quality, but it should be done well. It shouldn't be the kind of thing that, that aside from the parents who are watching cute little Johnny up there on stage, everybody else is squirming around, slightly embarrassed for the parents who don't realize that Johnny can't sing on key. So we try to maintain a standard of doing what we do and doing even though it may be only one or two things, we're going to do it as well as we can. So you, when you come to church, people come for all kinds of reasons, and their motivation may be right, and most often than not initially their motivation is wrong. But for most of the members of a congregation who are there week in and week out, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, they are there because they want to learn doctrine. Now, that wasn't true for the Corinthians. They were there for all kinds of other reasons as well, and doctrine wasn't probably on in the top five on their priority list. And they were there for emotional 
reasons and emotional excitement, enthusiasm, and stimulation. We'll learn as we get into the spiritual gifts. They were there on a power trip. They were there to figure out who was associated with the right group, and they had developed various cliques and factions within the congregation. And what we discover here is they enjoyed coming to the Lord's table because it gave them an opportunity to uh, eat a lot of food. Apparently, they the idea of a covered dish dinner wasn't something invented by uh, the Americans, but they would bring food and they would eat. In the early church, they would eat together prior to the Lord's table. They were imitating the Passover meal where the Lord and his disciples had sat down and eaten the the Passover meal And then our Lord instituted the Lord's table in the midst of that. So in the early church, the entire group would come together, and they would eat together and conclude the meal with the Lord's table, and they would call that a love feast. But they were coming together to see how much they could eat and to gorge themselves and then to uh, enjoy the communion wine to the extent that it made them drunk. So their motivation was not to worship the Lord. or It was not a... Christocentric worship, it was a self-centered worship. And this indicates that not all churches have it together and have a unified congregation. One of the things you need to watch out for, just a couple of principles, whenever you see in a congregation people who are working behind the scenes in various cliques and factions and in secrecy, you know that carnality is in operation. We will see that in these three verses. There are divisions, there are factions, schisms in this particular group, and that is clear from Galatians 5, uh, 17 to 19, that part of the work of the flesh is division and discord in a local congregation. So when you see people having to especially deacon boards, and I saw this happen in a terrible way in my first church, when you see deacon boards and deacons meeting behind closed doors, be careful that someone isn't hiding something shady or unethical. See, in a congregational government like we have, then board meetings should be open, unless, of course, you're discussing something of a personal nature in relationship to some individual that may be embarrassing. So things should not be kept secret. There should be an openness and an honesty because there's nothing to hide. Whenever there is secrecy, whenever you see people cloaking their activities in uh, sort of that cone of silence that we learned about in the old Get Smart series, when you see that, then you know somebody's trying to hide something that if it got out, it would create a terrible trouble. And it's usually because they're involved in some sort of shady or unethical procedures. So the second principle, when you see division and dissension in a local congregation, then someone somewhere is operating on their own agenda and not the Lord's, which means carnality is motivating people, not doctrine. And then a third principle, there is no place in the local church for the kind of power politics and manipulations that take place in the corporate world. And you know what I mean. Office politics can be terrible, and uh, it's, it's often the fact that you have people who are not perhaps as socially acceptable for whatever reason, 
and they're not very good socially, but they may be hard workers, they may be very diligent, and they continue to be passed over for one reason or another, or they're not with the right group, or they haven't made the right friends, or whatever it might be. There's no place for that in the local church. One of the things that churches often fall apart on, and a lot of what I'm going to say this morning is really addressed to our deacons, that a church may use and will use certain principles that are similar to sound business practice. But a church is not a business like IBM or Compact Computer or Microsoft or uh, any other business. It is a church. There are some similarities in the way you handle certain things, such as the finances of the church and some of the principles are similar in relationship to leadership and management. But a church is a church. It is not a business. We're not here producing a product. What we're here to do, it's an educational institution, and it is to teach people the Word of God. And the purpose for the local church is to communicate doctrine so that people can grow to spiritual maturity and to provide for evangelism both at home and abroad in terms of a home and foreign missions. That is the function of a local church, and there's no place for individual agendas in a local church. This is the body of Christ, and therefore what we read in the Scripture, we find our marching orders, and that describes what we are to do and how we are to handle things. When you see a church where deacons are using the business models of the world, they picked it up at Harvard Business School or Wharton School of Business or wherever it is that they went. When you see deacons using the world's model as their frame of reference, that church is in serious trouble. And that almost always happens when a church becomes pastorless. When a pastor leaves due to retirement, death, resignation, or whatever, that always happens. All of a sudden now, for the first time in 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, a board of deacons becomes, in its, as a body, becomes the, the shepherd of that congregation. Now, the problem is that if those men have never faced that situation in the past, then they're going to do what? They're going to fall back on whatever is their frame of reference. And if they are in business, if they're in executives in a corporation, if that's their background and their frame of reference, then they're going to automatically go to that model and bring it into the church. And there you've got trouble. In fact, if you get together at pastor's conferences, one thing you'll discover that all pastors hate is deacons who are very successful in business and I've had this experience in a former church. I had, I had four, four deacons, three of whom were highly successful entrepreneurs. And they wanted to quantify every goal and every objective in the church every year. Why aren't we growing? Why don't we get more people here? What can we do to get more visitors? And see, they're bringing this, this quantification of goals and objectives mentality from the business community into the local church, and all it does is create friction. And for five years, I fought with that at that church and never got anywhere. And I've talked to other pastors who've had the same kind of problem. In fact, that is one reason that when 
Chafer Seminary organized their uh, governing board, 80% of those on the governing board, which is the ultimate decision-making authority for the seminary, 80% of the men on that board have to be pastors with at least 10 years' experience in the pulpit because pastors understand what the goals and objectives are and what the model is for running a church or a seminary, and businessmen often uh, just rely upon that frame of reference. There are similarities, but that similarity does not mean that they are the same. So you have to understand the difference between a church and a business. So Paul says in verse 17 that he is not going to praise them. He is going to rebuke them, reprove them. He is going to correct them because they're coming together for the wrong reasons. Now in verse 18, he says, For in the first place, so the second place is going to deal with the issue of the Lord's table, and this morning we're just going to deal with the first place issue. For in the first place, you come together as a church, I, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Now, we have to do a little correction here on the translation, not a whole lot. He says, for, first of all, not in the first place, but first of all, proton, it's the accusative of protos, meaning first, for firstly, when you come together as a church, again, we have a present active part or present middle passive participle of sunerkami indicating the public worship of a local church when you come together as a church we'll deal with that word for church in just a minute i hear that divisions and the word there is schismata and this indicates that there are factions or cliques inside the local congregation there are people who have different agendas and sometimes those agendas don't have anything to do with the Bible or spirituality. They have to do with people whom they like or different factions or different uh, social groups within a congregation and uh, different, perhaps, economic makeup. There's all kinds of reasons that you have these factions, but they should, uh, whenever a pastor, and you know, usually it's the pastor is the last one to know this, because the pastor is not necessarily out in the congregation uh, socializing with everybody because of his position as a leader. So he's usually the last one to know, and so this is one of those things that the deacons need to be sharp enough on to recognize when this is developing and to let the pastor know when this is developing. This happens in all kinds of churches and is always a detriment to the health of the church as a, as a local body of Christ. But in this case, these divisions were coming about in the group. Now, they weren't, it's not a schism in the sense that they're splitting and going off and starting new churches. It's a schism in the fact that they, they, they divide up, they have all this internal politics going on inside the local congregation. And whenever you have that happening, remember this, that means there's carnality lurking somewhere. Now, the problem is if you get one group, especially a group that's in power, and I had this happen in my first church, you get a group that's in power and they're in carnality and they've rejected doctrine, then because they're operating on a human viewpoint agenda, what happens is the people in the congregation who are spiritual, who are walking according to, the script, according to truth, walking by means of the Spirit, those who are positive to doctrine, are put in a 
very uncomfortable position because now they have a group that has the high ground who has basically declared war on them as the enemy, and they have to do what they don't normally do and what should never occur in a church, and that is to fight for the control of that local church and take it away from those who are carnal. And most Christians who are positive and growing don't want to get messed up with that. But once the wrong people get in power or they, the people in power go carnal and are operating on a human viewpoint pattern, then those who are spiritual don't have any op- option but to fight back. Now, they have to fight back in the correct way, but they do have to fight back. And a great example of this, is of a failure on this, is what happened a little over 100 years ago in church history. In the latter part of the 19th century, churches were sending their pastors off to their traditional seminaries, their denominational seminaries for training. Now, what had happened during the mid-19th century is the chairs of theology and Greek and Hebrew in those seminaries such as Harvard and Yale and Princeton. Princeton didn't fall till a little bit later, Union Seminary of New York and in Virginia, that they had been sending their uh, professors to get second PhDs over in Germany and England and Britain. And those schools had all gone into liberalism. So when those professors came back from Europe, they had picked up a lot of liberal ideas in terms of liberal theology, and they were denying the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. They were denying the literalness of Genesis. They were denying the resurrection. They were denying miracles. They were denying all kinds of things. And they came back, and they were teaching this in the seminary classrooms so that when a church out in, you know, crossroads, uh, Iowa somewhere sent their past their their young men off to seminary at Harvard. When that young man came back and they put him on staff at their local church, he brought back all kinds of strange ideas. And as he taught those ideas, there were always a certain group in the church that's never really positive, and they thought, "Oh, this is great. We don't have to take the Bible literally." And so they became, they absorbed the, the liberal theology. Now you have a problem. You have a local church that has a certain segment in the local church led by a pastor. So they've got the high ground led by a pastor who is now denying the literal authority of the Word of God. Now, if they were in a denomination, as many of them were, Methodist, Episcopal, Presbyterian, Baptist, all went through this. What happened is you multiply that one local church by thousands, and suddenly you had a major problem in a denomination. Now, in these denominations, you had a tremendous amount of property. Those churches had been there for years. You can see the remnants of those churches, the old churches in Boston and New York, in Hartford and New London, and you can, and now that the pulpits there are teaching just blasphemous garbage, because they have now they lost the property, they lost the money, they lost the mission boards, and they didn't know how to fight to maintain control. And what happens in too many cases is that the people who are right, who are spiritual, they just feel dirty by this whole thing. They just they just feel like this is just a horrible thing. I shouldn't be fighting other Christians. Let's go find someplace else to go to church. 
And so they give up. They don't even fight the battle. You know, these same people would go out and give their life on a battlefield for the freedom of their country, but they won't fight for the doctrinal integrity of a local church. And they won't do what it takes to fight a war, and that's exactly what it is. It is a war, and you have to utilize the same principles of any kind of combat in order to take back the high ground that has been uh, stolen from you, that has been co-opted. And so this brings about church fights. And what happened in what is classically known now as the uh, modernist fundamentalist controversy that transpired at the end of the 19th century is that all the conservatives left all these churches. And they, they lost enormous amounts of money and property and missions and materiel. And it's not that the Lord doesn't own a cattle on a thousand hills, but it was a tremendous setback for decades before they were, there was reorganization and there were new churches established, and that's the ground. I mean, that's the background of how this church came to be a Bible church. Is and Dallas Seminary got started, and Moody Bible Institute, and many of those schools were started because of the liberal modernist controversy, and there weren't any places to go. And we see the same thing happening today. I think in modern evangelicalism, most people don't realize it, but we're in the midst of the same thing, and because of so many PR campaigns by many seminaries, people think that these schools are teaching the same things they taught 30 years ago, and they're not. And they're already making shifts in methodology, and that's one reason we started Schaefer Seminary 10 years ago, and it will probably be another 10 or 15 years before we know whether it is a really solid, stable school. It takes a long time. It took Dallas Seminary a long time. It was founded in 1923, and I don't think it really found its feet until after World War II. That's not to say they weren't solid, but I know that during the Depression in the 30s, uh, there was even a time when the faculty at Dallas Seminary had to take Dr. Chafer to court because he hadn't paid anybody a salary for two or three years. And uh, that was just the way it was in those days. It takes a long time to establish a school. So my point is that because people gave up, they didn't know how to fight well, they didn't organize themselves in order to resist the carnal and liberal takeover of the denominations, they lost millions of dollars with the property, millions of dollars worth of, uh, worth of financing, and it took decades for them to re- recover. So there is a place uh, for fighting, as we'll see, and fighting the correct way, as we'll see in the next verse. But Paul says in verse 18, in the first place, when you come together as a church, and I want to take just a minute to look at that word church. It is the Greek word ekklesia. The Greek word ekklesia, which is a compound word made up of the preposition ek, which means out of or out from, and klesia from klesis meaning to call. And if you break it down etymologically, it just means to call out. And you'll often hear people say, oh, the church is a group of the called out ones. And that shows you somebody who doesn't know anything about Greek. Because a word often means more than the sum of its part, 
the sum of its parts, and that's what's called the etymological fallacy, is when you break a word down into its two parts and say, well, that's basically what the word means. The word has a rich history and goes back to Attic Greek, at least, to the 5th century B.C., where it was used to refer to the political assembly in Athens. Athens was the first uh, political situation where they had a true democracy, and when the assembly met, which was called the ecclesia, which would be comparable to our Congress, when the assembly met, all the citizens in Athens would come together and they would all vote. They did not have a representative democracy. It was the first and last real democracy in, 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 in history. The word is also used in various passages in Scripture in that same way. Uh, in Acts 7.38, the word ecclesia is used in reference to the Jews in the Old Testament. And this is in Stephen's uh, sermon right before he was stoned. He's rehearsing the history of Israel. He said, this is the one who was in the congregation. There's the word ecclesia, translated congregation, in the wilderness. It's not the church in the wilderness, although King James Version or older versions translated it that way. It's not church. This is just the generic, non-technical use of ecclesia, uh, referring to an assembly. This is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness. So you have to look at, in terms of passages, what kind of assembly we're talking about. Now, if you're talking to somebody who comes out of a Reformed background or covenant theology background, they're going to think that they would go right here, and they're going to say, see, you had the church in the Old Testament. But this isn't the church in the Old Testament. This is the word used in a non-technical way. Jews that same way in Matthew 18:17, where it should again be translated assembly, because the con- there was no church then. Remember, church is still future, according to Matthew uh, 19, the ch- or later on in Matthew 18, it's still future. Christ said, "Upon this rock, I will build future tents, my church." So if the church is future, it hasn't been built yet when Jesus is speaking later on in Matthew 18, then obviously this isn't talking about the church in terms of the post-Pentecost church and the church age. Matthew 18:17 is a passage dealing with discipline, what happens when one, one person offends another, and it describes the process, and the conclusion is, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the assembly. So that's taking it to the synagogue, actually, in context. Then another passage where it's used of the uh, official government assembly would be found in Acts 19, uh, 32, Acts 19, 29, uh, Acts 19, 32, and 39, excuse me. There we read, So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And this is in one of the towns in Asia Minor where Paul had gone on a missionary journey. So he referred to the organizing body there as the assembly. Same in verse uh, 39 of Acts 19, the lawful assembly. So the word ecclesia had a rich history. See, God didn't invent a language for the New Testament. Koine Greek is not some Holy Ghost language, which is what some people thought at one time. It is the common everyday lingua franca of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. This is what everybody spoke on the streets. However, God the Holy Spirit, through the through the apostles, took certain words that were used in common uh, 
common discourse, and he gave them new new meaning. He took took the word and he gave it a more expanded meaning and a more technical meaning in relationship to God's plan and God's purposes. And the first of these technical meanings for ecclesia has to do with the church as the body of Christ, the church as the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ at that instant of your salvation, you are baptized by means of the Holy Spirit and placed into the body of Christ. The body of Christ includes every believer since the day of Pentecost in approximately 33 A.D., until the rapture of the church. Every single believer, alive and dead, is part of that universal body of Christ. And this is the way that word is used in passages such as Ephesians 1.22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. He gave him... Jesus Christ as head, that is, as authority over all things to the church. Now, that tells us one thing, that Jesus Christ is the authority, the ultimate authority in the local church. Ephesians 3.10, Paul stated, "...in order that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities, that is, angelic authorities, angelic rulers, in the heavenly places." So the church provides a testimony to the angels, not the local church of Preston City Bible Church, but the church universal provides that testimony. Uh, Ephesians 3.21, to him be the glory in the church, that is the universal church. Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the wife, is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head or authority of the church, that is, the universal body, he himself being the Savior of the body. Colossians 1, 18 and 24, he is also head of the body, the church, so that is the universal church. Colossians 1, 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. So you ha- when you use the word church, you have to distinguish between the universal church and the local church. Now, there are ser- several errors that come from this. There are two that I've had experience with. The first is what's called closed communion. There are some groups that deny the universal church. They think every reference to the church is a local church. And so you have to be a member of this local assembly This local church, or you can't participate in communion. But communion is for anyone who is a member of the body of Christ, despite their denominational or church affiliation. So if you come into any assembly anywhere, you have the right to participate in the Lord's table because you're a member of the body of Christ. I've also seen some churches that, because of this uh, error of uh, not recognizing anything beyond the local church, that every time you join, somebody joins, they have to get baptized. doesn't matter how many times they've been baptized, but they have to be baptized if you're going to be a member of this church. So there's all kinds of errors that develop. So we have to make this distinction, though, between the universal church and the local church. Now, a local church in the Scripture is usually designated with a geographical location and uh, 
here there's no geographical location, but it is clearly evident in 1 Corinthians 11:18 when you come together as a church, that is a local church. Remember, God instituted the local church as the place where Bible doctrine would be taught and learned. Now, today we have a group of organizations that also teach the Word, and they're responsible, or they get involved in all kinds of spiritual activities, and we refer to those as para-church organizations. That is, church, spiritual organizations outside the local church, and this involves uh, many campus ministries like uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, Navigators Campus Life, involves many different uh, missionary organizations. We have J- Jim Myers Ministries. That's a para-church organization. You have... Uh, you have CAM International, which originally stood for Central American Mission, but once they started sending missionaries to Spain, they had to change the name, so they just went with their with their abbreviations and called it CAM International. You have the SIM, the Sudan Interior Mission. You have all kinds of missionary organizations that are responsible for, for taking care of missionaries and all the administrative functions for missionaries, sending them all over the world. Those are parachurch organizations. They are not authorized by the Word of God. That doesn't mean that they're wrong. It means that they're not the issue. The issue is the local church. The issue is not a parachurch organization. For example, this last year we've organized Dean Bible Ministries. Dean Bible Ministries is a parachurch organization, and it exists for the purpose of disseminating the, the tapes and the teaching from, from this church, and because of technical legal reasons, it's important for a pastor to maintain copyright control of his own material. And so you have to do that, but a ministry of that nature must always be subsumed under the authority of a local church. It should not operate just randomly and independently like most of them do. For example, a seminary is also a parachurch organization. And one of the things that we have done with Chafer Seminary is to organize it uh, under a host church so that it's not just acting autonomously, but there will be some sort of relationship to the authority in a local church. It won't be totally autonomous. And the way we've done that is by including certain uh, members of the leadership at the host church, which is uh, George Meisinger's church, uh, which name escapes me right now, Grace something Bible Church in Southern California. You remember the name? I think that's it, Grace, Grace Bible Church in Huntington Beach. And two or three of their elders serve on the on the board of the seminary, so it's not totally independent of a, a local church. Once you get a position where a a parachurch organization takes over and runs a local church, again you're going to have major problems because a parachurch organization. Is not in, it has not been established and instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the local church that's instituted by the local church that's instituted by Jesus Christ, and it is the local church that needs to run and dictate policy to a parachurch, not the other way around. Now we come to the key verse here in verse 19 where Paul makes a very unusual statement. He says, For there must also be factions 
among you in order that those who are approved may may have become evident among you. Now, notice, he makes an ex- this is an explanation as indicated by the first word, which in the, in the Greek is gar, indicating the explanation of a principle. Why is it that they have these schisms in the local church? For explanation. For there must also be, this is the Greek word dei, which is the present active indicative of, of a of an unusual verb, it is an irregular verb, and it means simply that something is necessary, it is mandatory. Now, most people think that divisions and factions, schism, are something that's bad. That's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says it's necessary, it's mandatory for a reason, not in and of itself, but because it serves a higher purpose. Every now and then there needs to be a little bloodletting in a local church to get rid of the people who are really negative and who haven't understood the doctrine that's being taught. So Paul says there must also be factions among you. There must be divisions. There are times in the history of any local church when they are going to go through a little infighting, and this is necessary in order to reveal who is learning the word and who isn't. That's the point in the in the purpose clause. In order that those who are approved, this is the Greek word dokimazo, we've run into it many times, and it's the idea of of passing a test. Those who are approved, those who pass a test, receive rewards such as gold, silver, and precious stones in 1 Corinthians 3. It's also the purpose in... Uh, uh, James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and the testing of your faith word, that word there for testing, is, is a dokimazo, and it has to do with putting you in a position of pressure to reveal that which is positive. Same thing that we have at the judgment seat of Christ, that the testing, the evaluation judgment is not to show where you failed and sinned, but to show where you passed, where you operated in the filling of the Holy Spirit and uh, divine good was produced. So there come these tests in the life of a congregation where there is going to be some division and some disagreement, and it's going to reveal who's been listening to doctrine, who's putting Christ first, and who's understood the message and put the message in priority and not the man. See, that's a problem we get in so many places is we put the emphasis on the man and not the message. And one of the greatest examples I've seen of this was what happened in, oh, it happens a lot of places, but the most extreme I saw was down at First Baptist Church in Dallas when I was still uh, pastoring there and, and uh, going to seminary. And W.A. Criswell was one of the great lights of the Southern Baptist Conference. This man almost single-handedly, uh, not by his own person, but because of the influence he had through a number of men, turned the tide of liberalism in the Southern Baptist Convention. He was, a, he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He stood firmly for the infallibility and inerrancy of the Word of God, and he produced a number of key people out of his church. First Baptist Church Dallas at that time, back in the 60s and 70s, was the largest Baptist church, Southern Baptist church in the world. 
And W.A. Criswell we would come and once a year and preach in chapel at Dallas Seminary, and he was just one of these great old godly saints. You know, you just I don't think I could sit under him as a pastor because he didn't teach that much, um, not the kind of teaching we like, but he was solid. There wasn't an ounce of a problem there. But he didn't want to relinquish the pulpit as he got older. And when he got into his 80s, the board there tried to retire him. And, uh, boy, that's a, that's a problem. And he didn't want to retire. So they said, okay, what we'll do is we'll bring in a co-pastor. It's a great idea. We'll bring in a, a co-pastor, a man, and they hired a man from uh, over in Fort Worth. and said he's going to be the co-pastor for a couple of years, and during that time we will go through a transition. At the end of the two years, he will be the senior pastor, and you will be the pastor, pastor emeritus. Well, at the end of two years... The uh, young pastor who had one of the largest churches in Fort Worth because before he came over to uh, First Baptist Dallas, came to the board. And now this is a board of businessmen. I mean, the, board, the, the people who went to First Baptist Dallas were some of the most affluent and influential people in the city of Dallas. And some of the people who sat on that board were presidents, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, some of the biggest law firms, some of the biggest companies in the Dallas area. These were men who were used to making decisions about hiring and firing people. These were people who had faced uh, downturns in business where they would have to have uh, many layoffs. They were hardened businessmen. They knew what to do. But but after two years, um, Joel Gregory came to them and said... uh, you know, we had an agreement, and the agreement was that at the end of two years I'd be the pastor. Dr. Criswell would be retired. Nothing's changed. I still have, uh, a, a, I probably have less authority now than I did when I first came. He doesn't want to relinquish anything. Uh, what are we going to do about it? And they went, went around the board, and they all said, well, you're right. We haven't upheld our end of the bar- bargain, but, you know, he married my parents. He he buried them. He baptized my children. He led me to the Lord. I can't be the one to ask him to retire. And this is something that happens uh, time and time again where men put the emphasis on the pastor, what's best for him, rather than the congregation. And during those last years, thousands of people, I mean, this was, remember, the largest Baptist church in, in the world, thousands of people left First Baptist, because I, I remember hearing Dr. Criswell on the radio when I would leave church, and I'd be driving home, I'd flip on the radio and listen to him on my way home, and you could drive a truck through every word that he said. He had slowed down so much that he spoke. You know, you're going to sleep already. See, and, and, you know, that's a tough, tough situation. For a local church, an honored pastor who's been faithful for, I think he was there for 55 years or 56 years before before he retired. And that's in a church that's been there since the 1850s, and he's only the third pastor. So they've had lengthy, you know, every pastor there has been there over over 50 years. So that caused a lot of division. That's one of the weak points in a local church when they have divisions and factions. So I want to conclude this morning by just running through a brief look at the doctrine of church leadership. The doctrine of church leadership. First of all, there are two categories of church leadership. The first is a pastor teacher and the second are the deacons. 
Now, we have to distinguish between the gift of pastor-teacher and the office of pastor-teacher. Some men have the gift but don't hold the office, and therefore they have no authority in a local congregation and do not have authority until they are promoted by God into that position. Deacons are church officers. They are not professionals. They are uh, men in the local assembly who are deemed to be mature enough to handle the responsibilities for the local congregation, and in a congregational government as we have, they are elected by the congregation. They, according to our Constitution, the recommendation comes from the pastor uh, with the advice and consent of the board, and then the congregation approves them. Now, the pastor should be a man. On the second point, just briefly covering the qualifications of a pastor, the pastor should be a man who's seminary or Bible college trained, or perhaps, tra- perhaps he's trained or apprenticed in a local church. That's happened. That was a situation with uh, my predecessor, with Ron, uh, before I came. He was basically trained in a local church type of seminary. But there has to be some sort of training. You don't get your training just listening to a tape recorder. It's in that kind of classroom discipline that you acquire the study skills and the discipline to study. You learn how to exegete the scriptures from the original languages. You study systematic theology, church history. And you should acquire some basic skills related to the overall administration and leadership of a local church. The pastor-teacher must always be recognized, though, as the under-shepherd of the chief shepherd, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The pastor-teacher, it's not his church. And we do that. And pastors are terrible about that. We talk about, I'll talk about, you know, over, we'll go over to Jay's church for a conference, or we'll go down to, I'll go down, I may speak at, uh, at Rose's church down in Houston, or I'll go out to L.A. and speak at R.A.'s church. It's none of our church. It, it's the Lord's church. It's Christ's church. And we have to remember that this is just a delegated office for a brief span of time. And when the Lord shuts it down, and the Lord can shut it down any number of ways. He can shut it down directly by removing a man, and there may be some indirect ways in which the man needs to be removed. Now, the second office I want to look at, or the third point actually, focuses on the deacons. Now, the difficult thing with deacons is that deacons actually exercise responsibility in two directions. That means they have to be flexible, and you have to have good men who understand something about leadership and initiative when the time comes. First of all, the pastor is the final authority in the local church in respect to doctrine. But he's not the final authority in respect to the electrical wiring in the church or the plumbing or the landscaping or any of those things. Uh, He is the final authority in relation to the teaching of doctrine. The pastor is under the authority of the deacons insofar as he is to follow the guidelines of the church constitution and bylaws and the doctrinal statement. Those those documents exist in order to take care of problems. See, most of the time, church constitutions and doctrinal statements just sit on the shelf somewhere and gather dust. The time to pull them out is when there's a problem. Because what, you, what you've done in a well-crafted doctrinal statement and constitution is define the procedures for when there is a conflict. When somebody in the prep school starts teaching post-tribulationism, for example, as happened here uh, many years ago, or teaches something else that is contrary to the uh, teaching of the church, the constitution tells you what the procedures are 
to handle that situation because when the pressure comes, you have to know exactly what the steps are and you don't change the steps in the middle of the crisis. You have to deal with whatever rules were laid down ahead of time. You don't try to, uh, as we say in Texas, change horses in the middle of the stream. Now, the leadership of the deacons extends over the pastor only when the pastor-teacher violates the church constitution or doctrinal statement or fails to maintain the standards of behavior outlined in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Once the pastor-teacher is no longer able to feed the sheep, then the deacons need to take some form of action. That's always a tough time uh, for any deacon or any congregation and demands humility, doctrinal orientation, and impersonal love. It is wonderful, like in the example with First Baptist, to have loyalty, but don't confuse gratitude with loyalty. The loyalty from a deacon flows two ways. It flows to the pastor and to the congregation. He has to be loyal to the congregation to make sure the congregation gets fed. So the deacon stands stands as a representative of the congregation, and it is also part of their responsibility to see that the spiritual and physical needs of the congregation are met. He takes care of the spiritual needs by providing a pastor-teacher to feed the sheep until that pastor-teacher fails to feed the sheep, violates the standards of the office, the constitution, or the doctrine of the church. But who is it that stops a man who starts going out of bounds? If it's not the deacons, who will it be? That's where the deacons have to have maturity and humility to be able to say, wait a minute, now's the time for the pastor uh, to step down. Deacons also need to work on the what-if scenarios. They need to understand what the options are in case certain things happen. For example, once a pastor-teacher hits the age of 65, let's say, wise leadership is going to outline a plan of action for any eventuality. What happens if the pastor suddenly is taken ill, has some sort of, of heart problem, or perhaps I know of one situation where a man had, had several light strokes, basically took him out of the pulpit for two or three months. At the end of that period of time, he was able to return to his full duty and responsibilities again, but he had a sudden illness that took him out for several months. How do you handle that? What do you do if there is a besetting illness that will limit his ministry so that he could perhaps continue to teach on Sundays, but he couldn't keep up the same rigorous schedule of teaching two or three times a week? Uh, what happens if he suddenly dies? I know of a church down in, uh, down in Texas where the pastor suddenly died a, a little over a year ago, and they have had a, a lot of problems just because it, takes a, it wasn't expected, and uh, some people in the congregation just couldn't forget that it was the message, not the man. And so all they wanted to do was continue to listen to his tapes. And, and it just created a lot of uh, problems in that local church. Others wanted to go ahead and start looking for a pastor, recognizing the principle that a local church needs face-to-face teaching. But see, they had never planned for those eventualities. It's like so many people never plan for their own funeral. They never plan for the funerals of their spouse. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when we're going to hit with some kind of illness. You need to be wise and plan for these eventualities and have procedures in place. Otherwise, when those crises come, you're just standing there 
and you have to make it up on the fly, and you usually make bad decisions. Deacons also have to meet the physical needs of the congregation. This is their primary responsibility by taking care of the physical property of the church, such as getting rid of those birds that are always chirping up there in the attic, and uh, watching over the financial resources of the congregation to make sure that everything is done in an honest manner. Now, there are certain times when a church is prone to divisiveness and a split. This occurs when there's weak or no leadership either from the pastor teacher or from the deacons. Another occasion when a church is prone to divisiveness and a split is when there's false teaching, sometimes in Sunday school. Some churches have adult Sunday school classes, and you'll have a knowledgeable, maybe seminary-trained, uh, personable, charismatic, and I mean that in it, not in a theological sense, uh, individual who begins to teach something different from what the pastor teaches, and before long that can develop into a split. Uh, another time when a church is prone to division is during transitions. Uh, when, for example, when a, a pastor resigns or retires or dies and the deacons take over, and perhaps if they haven't been trained about how to do it, they usually make mistakes. I could go through a litany of examples of churches I've seen that have almost imploded simply because the deacons didn't have a clue what to do and messed up by the numbers once the pastor was no longer there to guide and direct them. As I said earlier, earlier, many of them fall back on their business experience, which is a recipe for disaster. Few seem to have the humility to contact a trusted pastor or a seminary for guidance and direction during this time, rather than going to somebody who has some expertise in the area, or like at a seminary, so, uh, where they usually have a department of uh, alumni where they handle things like this frequently, they uh, just try to make it up on their own as if from their own lack of experience. Another time of danger in a church is when they have a new pastor teacher because they, they still have some loyalty to the former pastor. And so the new pastor may not say things the way the old pastor did. And so they have trouble shifting their loyalty to the new pastor. Another time of problem is unprecedented growth. What would happen if suddenly in the next six months we had 70 new people come here? We wouldn't know what to do with them. Think about all the children. We would need more Sunday school teachers. Where would we get those Sunday school teachers? You know, you, and churches tend to grab Sunday school teachers and prep school teachers from what's available, and they haven't been there long enough to really understand uh, doctrine yet or to know the philosophy of ministry in the local congregation, so they can come in and start teaching all kinds of things. It can also be a crisis and a problem if the church is in a period of decline. What if you're living in some city where everybody's making a mass exodus to the south, which is what happened in towns like Pittsburgh and Detroit and other northern cities in the 70s and 80s? You had this massive flight to the Sun Belt, and you had churches that had had an average attendance of 1,500 drop to 500. It also happened historically in the early 1800s when you had churches of three, four, five hundred, or a thousand on the eastern seaboard, and all of a sudden everybody is headed west into the Louisiana Purchase, and churches went from 500 to 100 in a matter of months. What happens then is they always ask the wrong question. What did we do wrong? See, sometimes you can do everything right, and the church 
diminishes and the church shrinks. And we don't have room enough in our theology to understand the fact that, that we can do everything right and lose everything. But that can be God's will. Noah preached for a 100 years and didn't have a single convert. So just because you're shrinking doesn't mean that something is going wrong. So when you start asking a question, what are we doing wrong, you're probably going to get into some problems. The key, of course, is leadership. You have to have sound leadership that uh, is trained by the pastor. The deacons also have to provide leadership in terms of listening to and responding to the desires of of the congregation in any congregational government. See, there are two types of government. There's an elder rule government where the elders dictate to the congregation what's going to happen. They never listen. They never respond. The elders make all the decisions. A congregational government is where the congregation asks questions in congregational meetings, brings up new business, and asks and gets answers to various questions where there is an openness and an honesty in the, in the relationship between the board and the deacons. If problems need to be dealt with, if it's a personal problem or personal sin, then that should be dealt with in privacy. If it's a matter of doctrinal divergence, that should be dealt with in privacy uh, to begin with. But if it becomes generally known in the congregation, then it must be dealt with publicly. If it's a problem with policy or procedure, then it must be taken up by the board of deacons. But Underlying all of this is the principle of communication. Open lines of communication should always be held between the governing board and the congregation or the constituents. Once you have closed or shut down communication, you will always have problems and you are on the wrong road. And that can end up in the horrors of a church split. And let me tell you, Nobody really appreciates what happens in a church split. I went through one 20 years ago at the at my first church, and there was collateral damage from that church split in the lives of people for 10 to 15 years. Some people never got over that because it breaks up families, it breaks up close friends, it breaks up. Uh, for usually for no reason. Usually there's somebody who has some kind of agenda, and I hate to say this, but it usually has something to do with money. And I didn't learn that in that church for eight years. And it came out in two splits later after I left that church that one of the men who had been instrumental in, the first, in that first split with me was really the head of the missions committee. There had been so many people who had died and left money to that missions committee that he wanted complete control of... Of, of the money, it was in excess several hundreds of thousands of dollars, and the problem was that he was a closet charismatic, and he wanted to start giving all the money to Jimmy Swaggart and all these other charismatic organizations. And uh, but you know, the, the principle is true: whenever you see church splits, it almost never fails. Somewhere you got to ask the question, follow the money, and what's the problem there? So. There are divisions in the church at Corinth, and there it doesn't have to do with some of these that we've mentioned, but it does have to do with carnality, and it's always a result of carnality somewhere. And we will look at the problems in relationship to the Lord's table next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to see these important doctrines related to the operation of the church and church leadership and what happens when there are factions and divisions in a local congregation.
Father, we know that we are here because this is the body of Christ. Christ is the one who died on the cross as our substitute to give us salvation. The church exists to, for the sole purpose of teaching the gospel and teaching the word of God. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who may be unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you have to do right where you sit is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. All you have to do is trust in Him. Salvation is not based on good works. It's not based on morality. It's not based on church involvement, sacraments, or any other factor. It's based in belief that Christ alone, and by believing in Christ alone, you have salvation. Thank you for what we studied this morning. We pray that you challenge us with it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.